W233AH Monticello. From Radio Catskill Studios in Liberty, New York, this is the local edition. I'm your host, Jason Dole. We got news and information to keep you connected. Coming up, we check in with Spotlight PA, shining a spotlight on the opioid crisis in Pennsylvania and the gray area that those uh, helping people who are fighting addiction. The legal gray area they find themselves in if they provide clean syringes. Talk to the reporters who wrote this recent article. It's in the second half of the program, but first we're going to start off where we usually start here on a Wednesday evening. That's by getting the latest news during our weekly news roundup for the River Reporter. And for that, we turn to the River Reporter's own Ruby Rayner joining us live on the phone. Ruby, welcome back to the program. Hey, Jason. Thanks for having me. So um, let's start off with uh, rents increasing in Highland. What's what's this about? Is this just for the town of Highland? Yeah, definitely good to point out that this article is specifically about the town of Highland, but short-term rentals like Airbnbs um, have been increasing all over the River Valley, so it's definitely relevant to, to other towns. Right. Um, but there's been a big increase in... Um, requests for licenses for short-term rentals like Airbnbs in the town of Highland over the past eight months. There's been 34 um, property owners who have applied, and not all of them have been approved, but most of those have, and are some of them are still um, being looked at. And there's definitely some mixed, mixed feelings about the increase in these short-term rentals, um, some older residents who were at the town meeting um, who live around Montgomery Lake were saying that they were just not used to not knowing their neighbors. Um, six of like about the 20 houses that are around there are now Airbnbs, and they were expressing in the public hearing just their concerns about not being familiar with one another and, and that changing kind of the social fabric of the area. Right. When I when I first read this headline here and the, the term short term rental increase, I thought for for a short period they're going to raise uh, rents. But you're just talking about like the overall people that are using what's called short term rentals like these Airbnb type things. There's just more of that going on. Yeah, there's just more more approved licenses for Airbnb, like Airbnb, Zillow, any of those ones where you might go on and, and rent a house for a week for a vacation or something like that. Okay. And uh, is there anybody reacting to this, responding to this on the ground? Yeah. So in addition to some people being concerned about um, just it changing the general, I think, feeling in in the areas where there's increases in these short-term rentals is also people are worried about um, there's been instances of guests 
trespassing on other properties and also um, just like worried that people don't know how to properly take care of the area and they're just visitors. Um, but in terms of the the uh, economic point of view, the town does re- receive a fee, um, a yearly fee for these permits um, that is renewed yearly. So there's something for the town to be, you know, money to be made for the town in terms of the Airbnbs. Um, and in addition to that, um, a resident, Karen uh, McIntyre, she was a longtime former resident who now lives in Texas. She said that she wanted to rent her home to um, like a long, like a longer term rental, but that she couldn't find one that was able to pay a price that she thought was reasonable. So she turned to the short term rental because of that. So just a different perspective in that way. And then zooming out a little bit more, um, this isn't the first instance um, in the area of people visiting or traveling for vacation. Um, The article um, that will come out in the paper includes some information about these boarding houses that were in Berryville um, in 1899 and the um, early 1900s that similarly were for um, city folks to come and enjoy, you know, the fresh air and the landscape. So, it's definitely, you can see the, the cycle um, continue, and um, there's reactions on, on both sides, I think, positively and negatively. Right. Okay, uh, now uh, you have a story about mental health, the mental health situation in Sullivan County. What's this one about? Yeah, this is super interesting. So Congressman Mark Molinaro um, of New York 19 held a roundtable a couple weeks ago with key stakeholders in the county, Sullivan County, to discuss a proposed mental health stabilization center. Um, And what that is, is a 24-hour stabilization center for someone who might be experiencing a mental health crisis. And that can be Uh, That also includes um, substance abuse issues. So the the hope is that opening a stabilization center like that in Sullivan County would take some of the pressure off of hospitals and law enforcement who um, have been dealing with mental health, individuals dealing with mental health crises. Okay, and and, uh, when is it set to open? When is this actually going to take place? Yes, this is a very early preliminary meeting, and uh, the purpose was, I think, to motivate the county uh, to mobilize, to create a plan. So the biggest hurdle, obviously, um, is funding. I spoke with um, People USA, which is a nonprofit that runs a stabilization center in Dutchess County, of which the model is, is based off of, and she explained that there's oftentimes a lot of support, but finding the funding for... Um, building and opening a facility to the scale is definitely um, a big endeavor. Both Molinero and Aileen Gunther, who attended the meeting, she's the Assemblywoman in New York 100, they both were very supportive and said that they would do their best to secure finances, but they didn't identify any specifics. And I spoke with also the um, Garnet Health um, Chief Executive Officer Jerry Dunleavy, um, and he's in support of the center as well, but um, isn't sure that they're in a position to financially support it. And similarly, I spoke with the Under Sheriff of the Sullivan 
um, county sheriff's office, and he also said that he thinks that this would be a great investment um, for the county, but that he doesn't know where that would come from from his budget. So I think that there's definitely support um, from multiple different community partners, and it's now kind of to the point where it's just how are they going to secure funding and from what avenue will it be found. And so they're going to move forward with that with the new legislature and having a meeting about determining the specific stakeholders that should be having those conversations and figuring out where the funding will come from. Unfortunately, um, we think that it is very important but don't know where the funding is, is honestly something that that could be said about uh, uh, mental health care across the board in many different areas. I mean, maybe I'm being a bit facetious because, I mean, the fact that there are places and instances where people aren't admitting that mental health is the issue that it is. But even as there's dawning awareness, it still becomes the question of, okay, well, then then what are we going to do about it? Even when you know what you're going to do about it, how is it going to be funded? That's That's the sticky point. Yeah, definitely. And there's a huge need um, in Sullivan County for a facility like this. Um, in terms of, there's just been a, there's there's been decrease in over the past like decade in um, psychological like services, and so having an established facility is definitely um, a necessity. And additionally, in instances of people dealing with mental health, um, depression and anxiety have increased tremendously um, all over the state and nationally. So there's definitely um, a need for this facility. Isn't the county getting, uh, Sullivan County getting a, a lot of money uh, for the opioid crisis? It would, it would, you know, one would think that that would overlap with mental health a little bit, but I know these things are technical. They're complicated. I'm just looking at it from the outside. No, no. Um, yeah, in other in other counties where they've created stabilization centers, um, they have used uh, the opioid funding that they've received from these settlements, and so it's not it's not um, out of the question that others have done that. I don't know specifically if that's a possibility for Sullivan County. I know they've allocated. Some of that already. Some of, but yeah, but in the reporting for this story, you you haven't necessarily heard anybody bringing that up right now for the center. No, but I'm very eager to hear um, how the conversation goes and where exactly um, the funding is going to come from, and hoping that, um, as Molinero said, Congressman, that he would put pressure where it needs to be in order to try to aid in securing that funding. Yeah. So, me too. We'll, we'll watch it. Well, you'll watch it, and then you'll let us know because I'm curious Definitely. as well. Um, we've got just uh, just a couple minutes here, real quick. If you want to let us know about uh, Homesdale scrapping earned income tax, how are they doing that? Yeah, so we we mentioned this a couple of weeks for for those of um, the folks who tuned in, but they proposed an earned income tax, which was one percent income tax for employees who lived or worked um, in the Homesdale borough. And there was a lot of pushback from that, um, from people who attended the meeting, um, from residents. They felt that that was um, an unfair burden on local workers and, and just super cumbersome um, for local employers to ask of them. And so because of that pushback, mainly, they chose not to pass um, the earned income tax. And 
then they really need this money. So basically the, the money that they were supposed to realize from that earned income tax was $360,000, which they were going to use um, for storm stormwater repairs um, that has kind of been kicked down the kicked down the road and kicked down the road. And, you know, this will, they, without fixing these stormwater repairs, they won't be able to address issues like collapsed pipes, sinkholes, property damage. So it's, it's necessary. Um, and the alternative to the earned income tax to try to, uh, you know, find the funds of that $360,000 that they had previously were going to get from that, um, the suggestion is to uh, raise property tax and also cut spending. And it's unclear um, specifically what will be cut um, in order to find that money. And that was a bit of a, of a sticking point between um, two of the council members, Hamil and McAllister. And actually right now they're meeting about that in an emergency meeting where they're going to discuss exactly what will be cut and finally decide on how to how to re re get that that three hundred sixty thousand dollars in order to push forward for storm water repairs in the budget. Now, once again, it comes back to the question of money. And uh, <laughs> Ruby, I want to thank you for going over all these questions with us. And listeners will be able to hear you again uh, on the weekend, giving us our New York and PA headlines. Ruby, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Bye. Welcome back to the local edition. I'm Jason Dole. Spotlight PA is a nonpartisan statewide member-funded newsroom based in Harrisburg with the mission of, quote, holding the powerful in Pennsylvania to account through independent, investigative, and public service journalism. And tonight we're looking at a recent Spotlight PA article. It's called Opioid Settlement Money is Supposed to Expand Syringe Services. PA's Drug Laws Stand in the Way. And it's about uh, several charities in Pennsylvania providing syringe services in their communities despite a state law that puts them at risk. Here to tell us more about this is uh, Ed Mann, reporter for Spotlight PA, and Sarah Bowden, health and science reporter for WESA Public Radio in Pittsburgh. Thank you both for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Did, did I describe the general idea of the article uh, correctly? Is, is that's basically what this is about? Yeah, that's exactly correct. And so um, Spotlight PA collaborated with WESA, the NPR affiliate station in Pittsburgh, to report out this story, uh, both for the web, and then also they produced uh, a radio version as well. Before we talk about the kind of legal gray area these service providers are in, can we talk about the service they're providing, talk about syringe services? So it's pretty common for people who use illicit drugs to reuse syringes or share syringes, and this creates a whole litany of health issues um, in addition to soft tissue infections, which can lead to some very serious long-term health problems that also uh, makes it more likely to uh, contract um, blood-borne viruses such as HIV and hepatitis, and obviously this also has lasting health impacts. And so a really cost-effective and research-proven way to prevent these poor health outcomes is to give people sterile syringes when they're using illicit drugs. And research has also found that when um, these syringe pro service programs serve people who are 
entangled in addiction, um, people are, it builds trust and then people are more likely to seek help in recovery. What's the legal status of, of syringe service programs in Pennsylvania? They're, they're kind of uh, in, in limbo. How, how does that impact their ability to operate? So what we've heard from a range of providers is that it forces people to operate underground if they're not in Philadelphia or Allegheny County. And I can we can explain more about those places later, but it just it limits their ability to expand services. It limits their ability to obtain funding, and it really puts the threat of arrest. So it makes it so that it hangs over them whenever they're doing this work. What is that distinction between uh, areas that are Allegheny County and Philadelphia, and then areas that are outside of that area? Sure. And so Philadelphia, back in the 90s, then Mayor Ed Rendell issued an executive order giving legal protections to people who operate syringe services. And he was citing the, the city's own health powers and its, uh, the need to respond to a public health emergency, which was the AIDS epidemic at the time. And then Allegheny County, years later, health officials there and, and city council or county council took similar action, granting legal protections. But we've heard from a lot of people that in other parts of the state, those protections don't exist. And to be clear, uh, other counties and cities hypothetically could pass similar ordinances to get syringe services in their communities, but that would take a certain level of political and community support. But we talked to experts who said that Really, what needs to happen is for legislation or political action of some sort at the state level to explicitly make syringe services legal. Do you have an idea of the political will or energy at the level of the Commonwealth then uh, for something like that to happen? We spoke to uh, Representative Jim Struzzi, Republican from Indiana County, and he supports this legislation, supports this idea of authorizing syringe services across the state. He's got legislation that would do just that. Um, his bill hasn't come up for votes yet. We talked to the chairperson of the committee where that bill is. And the chairperson supports it. He's a Democrat from Montgomery County. But the chairperson was concerned about the idea that trying to get this through could potentially open up the open up this conversation in ways that he doesn't like and could lead to some uh, drug-related legislation that he would oppose. So there are some political complications in Harrisburg at the moment when it comes to this legislation. We're talking about politics, legislation, and political will. In the past, we've seen politicians using the issue as something that they can make some political hay over. Is that the concern there about like people start trying to leverage this issue in a political way rather than addressing it as a, a medical issue? I think there's the concern is that um, maybe more, I guess, what could be maybe seen as progressive or um, controversial policies might get tied into um, syringe service legislation, and uh, a lot of people in Harrisburg would feel that that's a bridge too far. Is harm reduction viewed as a liberal policy? Um, I think it's viewed as a progressive policy. Progressive, thank you. And yeah, and then, and then, you know, the representative Tim Briggs, he, he had concerns. His concern was, you know, if your listeners are familiar with the idea of safe in, or supervised injection sites, 
There's been a lot of debate in Harrisburg about trying to ban these supervised injection sites statewide. Tim Briggs doesn't want to pass a ban. He wants to leave that up to more local control. And he's concerned that, you know, that that could be proposed as an amendment in there. And that would, you know, create create a debate that he doesn't want to go down. And sometimes these issues get conflated um, because they're both policies that attempt to make uh, using illicit drugs safer. Um, But to be clear, they're very different. To reduce the harm for people battling addiction, it's important to have things like clean syringes. Uh, but if, if anybody's providing those resources to people to keep them safe, to keep them uh, healthy to the point where they might be able to seek treatment, um, it's technically I- I- illegal, correct? Well, we don't. That's complicated. So some people would say, yes, explicitly, this is illegal. And some people would argue that, no, that's an incorrect interpretation of Pennsylvania code. It hasn't actually been um, come before any sort of um, appellate court within the state. Um, And so it's kind of an open question. It's an open question. It's a level of uncertainty. Uh, but is there any actual prosecution happening for any of the folks that are uh, trying to do this work in the community? We have not found any sort of legal case prosecuting people conducting syringe services uh, outside of Philadelphia or, or Philadelphia or Pittsburgh. The issue is that because it's sort of in this legal gray zone, it creates what some would describe as a chilling effect. And it also cuts many of these services off from public funding. And as a result, these services aren't uh, in the communities that advocates say could really benefit from syringe services. And talking about public funds, there, there is this settlement money. Do you want to let folks know the details on that and how that plays into this? Sure. And so uh, across the country, a bipartisan coalition of state attorney generals reached settlement agreements with major drug companies to provide billions across the country uh, to settle allegations that they, about their role in allegedly fueling the opiate epidemic. And so as part of those big settlement agreements, they use those documents specifically say syringe services are one of the core strategies of how that money should be used. And so you have some other states that are using opiate settlement money to fund syringe services. But as we go into into the story, there are big barriers to that happening in Pennsylvania. One of the few exceptions is Allegheny County, which we reported is providing $325,000 in opioid settlement money, specifically syringe services. And the nonprofit there has talked about how that has a major impact on sort of their ability to offer services, plan, provide, um, and just, you know, do the work that they're doing. And that's not happening elsewhere in Pennsylvania in the same way that we're aware of. And what are you hearing from the people that are providing these services? What are they concerned about now? What are they hoping to see happen? Well, they're obviously hoping to see some of this money. Um, It's unclear if that's going to happen or if they will receive money. It's not going to be, in many circumstances, it's not going to go directly, at least, to certain services. Um, But their perspective is, you know, we're helping the people uh, that 
you know, the opioid settlement money is supposed to benefit. And so therefore, you know, our organizations should be recipients of some of that funding. Sarah, as somebody who's reporting on health and science, have you have you spent a lot of time on opioid usage and addiction issues? Is this something that you've covered in other ways before? Oh, certainly. How does these latest developments and the research that you did did for this story? How does that fit in with the landscape as you see it? Well, it's needed funding. Um, the question is whether these organizations will benefit from this funding. Um, other reporting that Ed has done. Uh, it has shown that um, sometimes this funding doesn't go to organizations benefiting people uh, working on substance abuse issues. Um, and maybe Ed can talk a little bit about that. Sure. And, yeah, I've also done some reporting on opioids, opioids in general and then the, with the opioid settlement money. And, you know, part of this this large debate about law enforcement spending and the opioid settlement funds, there's a big debate ongoing in Pennsylvania and nationally about whether this should, you know, go to police, whether it should go to law enforcement, whether it should go to pay for things like police cruisers, in some cases guns and detectives, um, or whether that's not the spirit of the opioid settlement documents. And so part of it is that opioid settlement documents in part are uh, vague and leave, leave things up to interpretation. Um, but so how this fits in is you have a lot of places that are pursuing law enforcement spending, which some see as either unnecessary or actively harmful to the to the mission of, of what they're trying to do in terms of combating the opioid epidemic, um, while some other services, such as syringe services, which have backing from the CDC, the National Academy of Sciences and Engineering, um, the American Medical Association, and a bunch of other groups are running into barriers. And I think at the core of this is a philosophical debate for, as to why people become addicted to drugs. Is it because, you know, they're criminal? Is it because there's something wrong with them or they didn't have, like, an appropriate upbringing? Or is it a medical issue that arises from, you know, what we call in health reporting as the social determinants of health, lack of education, lack of um, medical and uh, professional development opportunities, trauma. Um, and so should this be treated as a medical issue or a criminal issue? Yeah, and that's a debate that we've been covering for years here on Radio Catskill. In fact, just last night we aired our monthly segment called The Kingfisher Project that explores opioids and addiction issues. Uh, the host of that show explores harm reduction and advocates for that. So it seems to me like this is a transitional period. More and more people are, are becoming aware of the importance of harm reduction and approaching this more as a medical issue. I would totally agree with that, and I think that's because the opioid epidemic uh, impacted people who um, come from all echelons of society, and that's not to say that drug and alcohol addiction issues haven't affected people of, you know, different socioeconomic strata, but I think that when it came to prescription drugs and opioids, um, we saw that even more, and I think that is changing the way society thinks and feels about addiction issues. One of the people we spoke to in this story is Rep Republican State Rep Jim Struzzi, as I mentioned earlier, and he talked to us about how his own brother died from a drug overdose back in 2014 and how that 
you know, over time he's, he's changed the way he views addiction um, and that he has an understanding that he didn't have back then. And he was the state rep who successfully pushed for a major harm reduction effort in Pennsylvania a few years ago to legalize fentanyl test strips. These are test strips that can tell you um, if fentanyl is in drugs. And this was, you know, we had, we had similar situation going on there where they, they were largely not sanctioned outside of uh, Philadelphia and Allegheny County, I believe. Um, but people were providing them anyway. And then that legislation, you know, offered protections for people. And so he's now looking to expand that further with student services. We're in the middle of not just an opioid epidemic, but truly a drug epidemic. And so what I'm going to be watching for as a health reporter is if the same sort of progressive policies and compassion that we, uh, that I've seen lawmakers and uh, healthcare providers extend to people addicted to opioids. I'm really curious to see if we're going to continue to see that sort of compassion and progressive sort of policy extended to people who are addicted to other types of drugs. Because as we know, there are, there are different, we, we think of different drugs and different ways when it comes to sentencing and treatment. And, um, you know, I'm very curious if, you know, this might create a sea change when it comes to drug treatment in general. Yeah, we've got to move on, but I want to thank you both for doing this reporting and for taking the time to, to, to go through it with us. Thank you so much for having us on. Yeah, thanks for having us. Well, that's going to do it for the local edition tonight. Thank you so much for listening. Do keep listening on air, online at WJFFradio.org. Ask your smartphone, your smart device to play Radio Catskill. I've been your host, Jason Dole. I will be back again tomorrow evening, and we'll do it all over again right here on the local edition. For now, stay with us. Got the Retro Cocktail Hour coming up at 7, but first, it's The Daily from The New York Times. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH, Monticello. This is Radio Catskill. Listen local. Listen local.